the whole concept of hosting, but then playing at your own home course is kind of strange to me, you know, like it's kind of an unfair advantage, isn't it? You know, if you're hosting and then you get to play at your own home course, like you play that all the time. Um, I think it'd be fair if you hosted, but you didn't play there. You know, I think that would be a more fair, um, fair for everybody, really. Put another log on the fire. Nobody here is getting tired. Welcome to the fire pit with Matt Janella. Well, here we are, almost exactly a week after Brad Hurlbutt, the athletic director at Fairleigh Dickinson and member of the local NCAA championship committee, who walked down the stairs of the university club in Baton Rouge, Louisiana put his hand on his chest, and stomped on the hearts of the assembled crowd. The opening soundbite was Inez Juanamarta, a senior at Purdue, who was in that crowd that day, and who admitted to me she burst into tears. Like you, Inez, and the rest of those student-athletes, we were all shocked, mortified, confused, angry, and sad. But mostly, we wanted answers. Over the course of the next few days, I made several calls and sent a lot of emails asking players, coaches, and media to recount the specifics of the week, which is part one of this three-part series. While I was making calls and emails in search of some answers, Barstool Riggs was making calls and emails to create a consolation championship for the women who lost a chance to finish their year or career on the course, which is part two. As for part three... I turned to Jay Billis, the college basketball analyst who once played and coached at Duke and is still a practicing lawyer in North Carolina. Billis has spent the better part of a decade questioning and assessing the dysfunction and flaws of the NCAA. Billis is brilliant. I always get smarter when I spend time with him. It's Billis, Bones, John Smoltz, and Tony Romo who are on my modern Mount Rushmore of sports analysts. Even if I don't care about the teams or the outcome, I'll watch for the education about the sport and what I'm seeing on the screen. In this case, I called Billis to teach us about what we saw on those steps, and I wanted to get a better understanding of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. What is the deal with the NCAA? Why is the systemic, you know, sort of dysfunction continuing to happen, and how do we get out from underneath it? Yeah, Matt, it's been a long, long-term problem for the NCAA, and it's it's all coming to a head now because of the attention that's been on all of these different sports, in part because of the pandemic. But we've seen systemic issues with regard to gender equity, where the NCAA talks a good game, and but they don't walk that talk. Uh, the women's basketball tournament, uh, it was exposed that you know the NCAA didn't treat the win- women's tournament, the men's tournament the same. And they've been taking, and rightfully so, a lot of heat over it. Uh, right now, the, the lacrosse tournament is, uh, is in a minor controversy over roster limits, uh, in part having to do with COVID. But we've crossed a lot of different lines with regard to COVID. And when the participants are complaining, the coaches, administrators, uh, and certainly players, uh, it, it resonates and, and it, 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 it rings pretty loudly in Indianapolis. I think what we saw with the women's golf tournament, NCAA tournament regionals uh, at LSU, was yet another systemic issue. And I think the question arises, is this really the NCAA's fault? 
or is it the fault of maintenance or the 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 staff at the the golf course or is it the the tournament committee whatever it may be well ultimately the responsibility lies with the NCAA they're in charge of the championship they put all of these things in place they're the ones that chose the committee members and and chose the venue and these you know the, the rain didn't just pop up you know like a pop-up shower that lasted for a, a long time uh, there could have been some adjustments and things done uh, to, to mitigate this and to, to get the tournament in. And you certainly aren't bound, especially in a pandemic, bound by a manual that, that this manual wasn't carried down by Moses from Mount Sinai on, on tablets. And you can make adjustments and everybody would understand. If the tournament has to be over by Wednesday, that can be extended. That is not that big of a problem. Uh, so I, I think right now, given what we've been through, uh, getting to yes and getting to a conclusion where the, the competitors can compete, it's not good enough to walk down some stairs and tell uh, a bunch of athletes that, well, sorry, this is it, and then walk back up the stairs. That's just not good enough. And, uh, and I think the NCAA has to take responsibility for that. I asked Billis if he thought the situation in Baton Rouge was a gender issue or a golf issue look at the hoops we jumped through to have uh, an NCAA men's basketball tournament and a, an NCAA women's basketball tournament. Now, obviously those are, are big revenue producers. So there, there are more resources put toward those events. But uh, if you're going to put a championship on, you got to put it on the right way. And you, ha you, have to get, you have to get this thing in. And if it means you're going to have to make adjustments, if it means you're going to have to look at your manual and say, you know what, I, I know what the manual says, but here's what we're going to do anyway. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to tell these athletes no. Um, we're, we're going to figure out a way to to, to play this championship. Uh, I think you do it. And if it comes down, it's a question of research. Like, how much do we really care about this? Um, because whether it's football, basketball, lacrosse, golf, you name it. They're, they're of the exact same importance to the participants and the coaches. They may not be of the same importance to viewers uh, or, or administrators, frankly, but they're, the, they're of the same importance to the competitors. And, and it's another thing about, about talking a good game versus walking it. Uh, the NCAA talks about all these different student athletes, all of them being important. And, and then we see what's really important when we, this would not have happened if it were a football game. It would not have happened if it were a, a basketball event. It would have been played. Uh, but because it's, it's a golf event, and I don't, I don't think it's necessarily men's versus women's golf, but, but sadly we're talking about it in women's golf, uh, taking, a, taking another hit. Uh, I, I think if it were football or basketball, they would have figured it out. I, I really believe that. What is at the core of your energy and passion behind, you know, you know, the NCAA as it as sort of this institutional sort of dysfunctional thing that kind of hovers above unpaid athletic competition? I think, Matt, it's my experience with it. You know, when I was in college a million years ago in the 80s, I was a member of an NCAA committee. I was a, a an athlete representative of the uh NCAA Long Range Planning Committee. I always joke that clearly we didn't do that good of a job. Look where we are now. 
but uh, it's your but when, fault, Jay. It's your yes, fault. I knew it. I, I just my long range planning skills are so crappy. But when, when I was on the committee, I brought up a lot of the same issues that we're dealing with now. Uh, transfer issues. I didn't think the transfer uh, policies were fair uh, then, nor do I think they're fair now. Uh, I did bring up limited issues about athlete compensation, not necessarily being paid, but being allowed to accept things um, uh, that other, other students could accept and, and I, we wouldn't get in trouble for it. And those things were usually shot down for policy reasons in meetings by athletic directors and commissioners and the like, who were great people and whom I had great relationships with. But back then I was a good soldier. You know, when, when a decision was made that I didn't agree with, I supported the decision publicly because I was a member of that team. But I'm not on that team anymore. You know, now my job is to analyze. You know, I mean, they call me, we used to be called color commentators. Now we're analysts. So if I'm going to analyze the game and the rules of the game and all that, I, I have to analyze policy too. I think I'm, I'm suited to do it. I think I understand it. I've studied it. Uh, so I don't feel shy about saying this is wrong. This is right. Uh, this is good. This is bad. Um, I, I don't feel one ounce of, of, of a problem in doing that. Uh, and I think we've seen though, Matt, over the years, like maybe 10 years ago, if I would talk about these things, there, were, there would be some people that say, ah, just talk about the game. We don't want to hear about this crap. Just talk about the game. Uh, I don't hear that anymore. Um, I think everybody sees it, given all the money that's involved in these games, all, all the, you know, these schools, it, it was shown through the pandemic. These schools are media, they're media rights content providers. And, and I, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but the pandemic showed us we didn't play football and basketball because the kids wanted to play. That was a convenient thing to say. Well, the kids want to play. Well, the, the quote unquote kids in every other endeavor in university life, they wanted to participate in their stuff too. And they didn't get the chance. And it's because we didn't sell their, we didn't sell their content. You know, we owed that content to media rights companies. And, and in order to get that content, the, the schools had to, to get paid for that content, school had to provide it. So you, you, you know, it's one simple question and answer it reveals it all. You know, name me one non-athlete student that was put on an airplane by a university in the last 14 months for a university function. And you can't name one because they, there wasn't one. It was only, it was only athletes. And, and it even goes to non-revenue sports because those sports were content provided uh, to, um, uh, to the uh, conference networks, you know, the SEC network, the ACC network, Pac-12 network. They needed all those non-revenue sports uh, for their own content uh, to, to be provided. So look, it's a big business and that's why I talk about it. And that's why these issues are being decided before the Supreme court. That's why Congress has taken this up. That's why all these States are passing NIL laws. And, uh, and, you know, we're seeing it, you know, even in golf, um, you know, funny, Matt, with recently when the, uh, USGA and the RNA made an announcement with regard to competitors being amateurs being allowed to accept, uh, more than in the past, some prize money. I had been asked about it and I said, I thought it was a great thing. You know, I, I, I thought it was a really important step, not only for, for amateur golf, but for, uh, uh, but for NCAA sports, all that. And I got, I, I, I had several club pros call me and say, we'd like you to reconsider your stance on that because this is really going to hurt club professionals. That if, if at a, a member, local member guest or a member member club championship, if, if the competitors can accept prize money 
and not, not apparel through the shop, we're going to lose a lot of money. And I started really thinking about it. I'm saying, well, geez, you know, I didn't really think about it that way. But then I started thinking about, well, they're really, they're not talking about the principle of amateurism here, that it's wrong for a competitor to accept that. And it's wrong for it to be provided. They were saying it's wrong for it not to flow through our pockets. And, and, but it was really interesting. I'm not, I'm not saying they were wrong in voicing concern over it because everybody's got their, their interest, but but even in golf, which I think is the, the only true amateur endeavor in sports, uh, as you know, Matt, like an amateur golfer decides when and if he, he or she will play or practice. You know, if you're, if you're practicing for the mid-am or the USAM and you've got a, a family wedding coming up, you say, well, you know, I can't practice for the USAM. I can't even play this year. You know, you think any NCAA athlete is saying, well, I got a wedding coming up. I can't play. No way. You're practicing and you're playing. Um, you're a pro and uh, and with amateur restrictions, but amateur golf is different. But but I was surprised at the sort of at the response of the club pro. I did. I just didn't think about it. And it was an interesting point. But it was interesting. The, the point wasn't being made on the principle of amateurism. It was being made on, well, wait a minute. The money still has to flow through us or we're going to get hurt. I, I thought that was really interesting. Do you see a day where the NCAA gets dismantled and there's a different way of going about amateur athletics in the United States of America? Yes and no. Dismantled, no, because uh, multi-billion dollar businesses don't just fold up their tent because they have to allow pay to their employees. Um, they're not going to do that. We, could, we, we will see a different structure going forward. It may be that the Power Five schools, I don't think they'll break away, but they may form more of their own division. Uh, we're certainly going to see things go toward where the money is. Just as we've seen with the college football playoff, that's only going to get bigger. It's only going to expand, um, and we're going to see we're going to see revenue generation enhanced across the board uh, with new revenue streams, streaming, all these different things. We, 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 who could have imagined 30 years ago that that conferences would have their own networks? Uh, now, that does that help uh, non-revenue sports, quote unquote non-revenue sports? I think it does. Uh, so I think we're going to see all of this continue to expand rather than uh, contract. Um, but but I do believe this, that that it's inevitable that athletes will will be compensated for their name, image and likeness. And I believe beyond. Uh, and, and it's inevitable that this is going to continue to grow. Um, we've already passed the point of, of saying, well, these are just extracurricular activities, just like being in the band or the drama club, or it's not, it's not that um, we're in the, we're in, we're in a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry. And, uh, and it is far different from the U S amateur, you know, the U S amateur may be funded by the U S open and the USGA, but it's not run the same way. And, and the, the Southeastern conference is run the exact same way as the NFL and, and the, the sec basketball is run the exact same way as the NBA. They're just mini NFLs and mini NBAs. They pay, they pay their coaches the same way. They operate the same way. The only difference is the players are required to be enrolled in school and go to class. That's the only difference. Everything else is exactly the same. Phyllis makes the point that so much has evolved for amateur sports. The business of being the NCAA, the business of being a school, a college coach, the sports complexes and training facilities, the merchandise and especially the distribution contracts, and yet... For the athletes, 
up until recently, it's pretty much all stayed the same. Things are changing for the athletes right now, and it's causing a lot of consternation among administrators, like, like old guys like you and me. It's causing people a lot of problems. But you know what? We didn't get to this point by accident. Uh, we've had a ton of change in the last 30, 40 years on the revenue generation side. When I played basketball in college, my coach was Mike Krzyzewski, same guy that's coaching there now. He made like $75,000 when I played for him. He's making like nine or 10 million now. And nobody's complained about all those changes. But it's funny now that the athletes who've remained the same all this time, they're, they're being allowed some, some rights of movement with transfers and they're being allowed some, a few drips of compensation in NIL. And it's not like we're turning the faucet on. We're just asking how many drips out of that faucet should they be allowed? And, and we're talking about doomsday scenarios. Um, I don't buy it. I don't think we're going to have doomsday. I think the business will, will, will be just fine, just like it's been at every other step when, when all the changes have been on the revenue enhancement side. Now it's going to be athlete enhancement, some of their compensation, and we'll, we'll be just fine there too. Another issue are the inconsistencies within the rules and guidelines per sport and athlete. Why not evolve the language and structure so they make sense to everyone involved? Most notably, the young men and women who are being exploited for their ability, namesake, and likeness. I don't know why we're stuck on this um, sort of uh, amateurism uh, signifies some sort of love for the game. I don't think it does. I just think it's a it's you know for for my level of golfer, all, all it does is is mean I, I I can play more often against somebody that I have a chance to compete with. That's all it means to me. Like the the the, the big time amateur golfers. Are, are honestly are professional amateurs. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you and I have talked about this in our times together when we played or, or, or hung out, but you know, several years ago, I've got a really good friend at a, at a club manufacturer. He invited me out to, to one of their facilities. And while I was there sort of getting fitted for clubs and feeling like, you know, feeling like a king and enjoying that, I turned around, there were all these college golfers there that were, were leaving there with tons of gear and all this stuff that I know they weren't paying for. And, and I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. But that would be, like, if those were basketball players, they'd be rung up as having violated every amateurism rule in the book. So amateurism is really whatever we say it is at any given time. And, and look, it's an elitist concept. Um, because back in the day, in order to be an amateur, you had to have money. Amateurism came from a place where the moneyed elites did not want to play against the common man, did not want to compete against the unwashed masses. And the way to eliminate the common man was to make it amateur where the common man couldn't afford to play. And, uh, and that's not what it is now. I think we're in a, in a more inclusive environment where, especially in golf, we're striving to be more inclusive and to take the game to the masses. But, but whether it's golf or the NCAA or any of these things, like amateurism doesn't enhance your love of the game. It just doesn't. Uh, I, I've never bought that, and, uh, and I, don't, I don't think I ever will. Like, I, I, love, I love these games, whether I'm paid or not, and I think it's true of everyone else, too. Just to wrap this up on the NCAA women's regionals and the reason why I went down this rabbit hole and why I'm going to do this podcast and tell this story in hopes that Maybe it, you know, it doesn't happen again. The, the real crime here is that athletes didn't get a chance to be athletes to prove 
that, you know, as both individuals and as a team, that they have the opportunity to keep advancing and playing for a national championship. The rug got pulled out from underneath athletes. And that's why, that's why it matters really to me. How do, how do we make that up to them? That's the thing is, is we talk a good game about wanting to let the competitors compete, let them decide it on the field. And I believe that that opportunity existed uh, at the women's regional that, that they could have, they could have found a way to play and they chose not to for a variety of reasons. And I'm not saying it came from a, a bad place or they were bad people. I disagree with the decision. But ultimately, in all of these decisions, the ones left holding the bag are the competitors, the players. And, and Matt, like this has always frosted me on the basketball side. I, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but or whether you hear it, you're, you're far more involved in golf than I am. But on the basketball side, I hear every now and again when we talk about policy or rules or all that, how things should be done, you hear about our game, protecting our game. And one of the things I've, I've said uh, of late is it's not our game anymore. Like, I don't play basketball anymore. Um, I, I'm in a few different positions of leadership or, or, or policy where I'm on a committee here or there. But, but it's not my game. It's not our game. It's their game. And, and I feel that way about golf. This wasn't, this wasn't the NCAA's championship. This is the players' championship. And, and I believe that, that heaven and earth should have been moved for them to play. And I think it could have been accomplished and it wasn't. And that's a, that's a major failing on the part of the NCAA leadership for, for that not to have been played. And I think the reaction you've seen and we've seen has been a direct result of, of, of the players not getting a chance to decide it on the field of play. And, and you'll never, nobody will ever convince me that the right decision was not to, not to try. I'll end all of this with final thoughts on the NCAA from three players. First, Nicole Schroeder, the fifth-year senior at Oregon State. Their job on the NCAA is to do everything in their power to provide student-athletes equal opportunity um, to compete at the level that they signed up to compete at, and they failed us. That was not lived up to in any capacity this week, um, and quite sad. Ellie Salama, who also plays for Oregon State and who promises to keep peppering the NCAA with emails and letters until they make some changes and they apologize for what they did in Baton Rouge. I mean, the NCAA is so vocal about having every opportunity for student athletes to play and compete. And especially after COVID last year, where our entire postseason and most of our normal season was ripped away, they didn't even give any effort to make this happen. And they didn't take anyone's feelings into consideration that there were a bunch of fifth year seniors that came back just for this opportunity. And then it was once again, just ripped away. And finally, one more from Inez Wanamarta of Purdue. What happened should not have happened. Um, you know, we're, at Divi- we're, we're talking about NCAA division one here. You know, I expect more. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm gonna say. Hard to argue with Inez. Let's all hope something like this never happens again. Unfortunately, with the NCAA in charge, competing schools acting as hosts, and with alumni serving on the compromised committees, it seems these systemic failures are here to stay. Now go watch and support the LTP Classic 
where they're finally getting a chance to play. Thanks again to Jay Billis, all of the coaches, athletes, and Barstool Rigs for making this series possible. And thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Link Soul and Parpoints for their sponsorship of this podcast and the firepitcollective.com.